Welcome back to our podcast. In our last thrilling episode, we saw how the settlements of Plymouth, through the people that they exiled, Cape Ann, Nantasket, and Numkeag inadvertently helped to create the Massachusetts Bay Colony, a Puritan juggernaut that would swallow up the autonomy of all these smaller settlements and eventually absorb Plymouth itself. Over the last few episodes, I've tried to be inclusive of every little nook and cranny of English settlement in the area that would now be Massachusetts. Every little trading post, every single person who made a homestead out in the woods. But I withheld one location from our story up until this point, because it will be an important part in our transition into the rest of the season. And that would be the colony originally known as Mount Wollaston, and then eventually Marymount. And our main character for this episode, and I choose my words wisely, he's definitely not a protagonist, but he is a character, is one Thomas Morton, a guy we've met before in our first episode on the colony of Wessagusset. Morton never claims specifically that he was part of that colonial adventure, but he does claim to be in that vicinity of New England in 1622. And all the other details from his story would only match up with that first colony, founded by Thomas Weston. Fortunately for Thomas Morton, he left very soon afterward and didn't have to survive that Wessagusset winter that included hangings, starvation, freezing to death in the mud, and decapitations in the spring. But how did Thomas Morton, an English lawyer, end up in the New World in the first place as some sort of co-investor colonist? Well, let's back up one year from West Augusta, 1621. He was hired as a lawyer to represent a wealthy widow by the name of Alice Miller to settle an estate for which she had a conflict with her own son. By the very early part of 1622 at the latest, Thomas Morton appears to have married Alice Miller, again, the rich widow. Now, he claims that her family encouraged this marriage, as Alice's son showed to be unsupportive, and Alice would need a strong man in her life. The son, of course, accused Morton of being a swindler. And then, for reasons not entirely clear, the next time we hear of Morton, he's in the New World for at least three months. In the records that the Pilgrim Fathers have left, they accuse Morton of being a murderer and having to leave for the New World in order to escape justice. Of course, they also describe him of... Uh, having a background of low rank, which, of course, we know he had enough support to become a lawyer. So we really have to question the portrayal that the Pilgrim Fathers take on Thomas Morton. Although Morton is no angel, perhaps they exaggerate or even commit libel in small little corners of the details of Morton's life. Back in England in 1623, he wins all of these court cases against his now son-in-law and has full control of Alice's estate. Not being a very dutiful husband, he made investments in 1624 in another colonial venture in very much the same area. A certain Captain Wollaston, who remains mostly off the record, we know very little about this person, seems to have developed a quite profitable business taking indentured servants from England and selling them in Virginia. Thomas Morton bought into this business, and in 1624, while heading towards Virginia, Wollaston stopped off the coast of modern-day Massachusetts not that far from where Thomas Morton was during the Wessagusset colony, perhaps using some information that Morton had given him. He stays for about nine weeks before heading out to Virginia. During that time, they build some structures on a high point with great visibility, hence Mount Wollaston. And before he left, he put a certain lieutenant of his, by the last name of Fitcher, in charge of the small encampment, along with 12 other men. Some sources say Morton arrived with this first group, but others that seem to be more specific, more reliable, 
refer to Morton arriving in 1625 when Wollaston returns. And this time he shows up with Morton and two or three other gentlemen or men of some wealth, some means, along with 30 indentured servants. And yet another disclaimer, the whole 1624 endeavor, that could be the mistake in the historical record. Perhaps all these events took place in one single go in 1625. It's confusing, not terribly important to the story from now on. Other than the fact that you know Thomas Morton is there, and he's up to no good. Wollaston spends the winter of 1625 there, and had the same experience that Champlain had at St. Croix, has the same experience that the poor people at the Popham Colony had, has the same experience that the poor people at the first West Augusta Colony had, and the second West Augusta Colony. He hated the New England winters. And so in the spring of 1626, Wollaston leaves. The weather was terrible, and there were no profits being made. He decided to go to something that was more his cup of tea, Virginia. Having a single ship, he packs it with these indentured servants, his product essentially, for sale down in Virginia. And he puts a man by the name of Rasdell, last name Rasdell, in charge of Mount Wollaston. Thomas Morton, all the time, lurking in the background. Wollaston down in Virginia, he sells off his indentured servants, makes a killing. Now, if you know anything about colonial Jamestown or the Virginia colony, during this early period, being an indentured servant in Virginia is pretty much a death sentence. This will become an important fact in a moment. Come the summer of 1626, Captain Wollaston returns to Mount Wollaston, where he seems to be using it as a caging area to hold his indentured servants, his product, where he comes to retrieve Rasdall, his employee, and another boatload of servants, the merchandise. He then leaves Fitcher, the aforementioned Fitcher, again in charge of Mount Wollaston. What's notable here is that if Morton was an investor, he didn't invest heavily because he apparently didn't have any say in the colony up until this point, and he wasn't even Wollaston's second pick in terms of being the leader of his human warehouse in New England. Now, up until this point, the story is somewhat scattered, debatable. Perhaps events have been truncated. Perhaps events have been split into multiple events. But now they become more specific. So now in the fall of 1626, there's only about nine people left at Mount Wollaston. You have Fitcher. We know Thomas Morton is there and probably seven other people. The other gentlemen are gone and these seven are more indentured servants. Now, this is where things take a turn. Thomas Morton, English lawyer, of course, here in the New World, quite the talker, still charming. He presents a choice to these indentured servants. You can remain loyal to Fitcher. You can do his bidding and you can wait and you can wait for Captain Wollaston to return and put you on a boat and take you down to the humid colony of Virginia, where you will be sold as an indentured servant to a tobacco farmer. Tobacco farming is hard work, and that very well might be the end of your life. Or we together can get rid of Fitcher. I have plenty of resources back in England. We get rid of Fitcher. I make you all my partners in this new business. We set up trading posts for beaver pelts and other animal skins, make friends with the natives, and now you're all successful businessmen. Now, for you listening at home, what would you choose? Now, me personally, I'm not going to Virginia in any era before air conditioning. I can't handle it. I'm a New York boy. They run Fitcher out of Mount Wollaston, and he never returns. Now that Thomas Morton has ascended to the power of this very small settlement, he becomes far more important to the story. Perhaps during his 1622 trip, 
he met with some members of the Massachusetts tribe and began learning their language or their customs. Maybe those deepened during 1624, if he was there, and definitely during 1625. But now here in 1626, we see that Thomas Morton has transformed himself into this great ally of the natives. He would dance with them and he would hunt with them. He would hang out with them. The lifestyle Morton had more closely matched those of the native braves than the standoffish pilgrims at Plymouth or the corn thieves of Wessagusset. They liked him and he very much liked them. He spent a lot of time with them and he wrote some of the earliest accounts we have of the natives in that area. He was very impressed by their hunting skills. He described them as almost being superhuman in their senses of sight and smell. He noted that they had perfect posture and proper modesty, manners that would put to shame any average Englishman. In his writings, he noticed that compared to those stingy people at Plymouth, the natives out here in the woods of Massachusetts seemed far happier, and he even compared their form of government to Plato's Republic. But again, we have to remember that Morton's own words and his own accounts he wrote down after this point, they're still questionable. This is Thomas Morton. This is a lawyer. He's a lawyer. And you know what that means. Don't act like I'm being offensive. He claimed that native baby girls were born white, just like a European, but their mothers would dip them in a tea made out of walnut leaves to darken them. Now, what's the origin of that? So either the natives were messing with him, which it could be an obvious conclusion. Morton was making it up for some reason or for some miscommunication. He honestly believed it. Remember, this was before race theory. And the English and many Europeans generally saw the world as Christian and non-Christian. There was a, a religious barrier there. But some of the earliest English sources, and I believe some of the earliest French sources, mention that the Native Americans are darker than Europeans simply because they're in the sun more. That was their belief. And many of them remark on how the Native Americans appeared to be just as smart as any European, given the same background, if they were afforded that in the European mind. It wasn't until after King Philip's War in the 1670s, that all these mindsets really start to change. Remember, we're hundreds of years before our present time. Another silly chapter in uh, Morton's story is that apparently the natives gifted him six live moose. Mooses. No, it's just moose, right? Just moose. Six live moose, which Morton believed he could domesticate like an ox or something. And this idea actually made it into the writings of Sir Ferdinando Gorgias, a man Morton's going to meet later on. The natives really take to Morton, and because of that, they offer him some choice trading options. Morton himself claims that he could get an entire beaver pelt for a single fish hook. Now, this could be an exaggeration. In the European mind, it might be an example of a naive trade on the part of the Native Americans, but we know the people at Plymouth weren't getting deals like that. Now, it might come down to the fact that the natives valued his friendship and him being an ally and gave him... In certain cases, certain times of the year, overly gracious trades. Either way, from Mount Wollaston, he starts setting up trading posts up and down the coast, extending into modern-day Maine. And he proved quickly successful, which was suspicious to the people of Plymouth. The accusation being he was selling them things that the people of Plymouth were refusing to sell, or that were, at this point, illegal to sell. In either case, alcohol and guns. Moving into the mind of the leaders of Plymouth, you can see why they would be concerned in terms of safety if the natives were getting alcohol and guns. But there was also a profit motive involved here. See, the Plymouth settlement had also been setting up trading posts. And if we're looking for an economic motive, it's pretty simple. Morton's trading posts proved to be their competition. They sent him letters warning him not to trade in these commodities. 
he would respond that he wasn't trading in these commodities and he would carry on his business as he saw fit. And in fact, before the year 1628, he erected what was called a maypole, a tradition harking back to Germanic pagan pre-Christian rituals. During the coming of the spring, a large pole would be put into the earth like a flagpole and decorated. A Freudian might call it a huge phallic symbol because these maypole celebrations, collectively known as a May Day, sound familiar? Would be associated with the lowering of inhibitions. It is spring. It is time for renewal. It is time to be fruitful and multiply. The people at Plymouth record rumors that Morton was inviting native women to these maypole celebrations. A healthy dose of liquor going around. Dances and ceremonies to ancient Roman gods were occurring. And ultimately, an obscene amount of sexual relations. You can imagine in the religious mind of the Pilgrim Fathers, this was some sort of Satan-infused vanguard against God's kingdom, where the natives and their demons, combined with Morton and the Old World demons, coalesced into orgies of pleasure. And Plymouth was not without effect from this. Indeed, the loss of business, as we discussed. But young men in and around Plymouth would happen to find their way there every now and then. The isolation that the pilgrims so desired. Here we are, 1627, 1628. It's already been contaminated. The devil has arrived, and Thomas Morton is his avatar. Moving into the year 1628, he again has a second Maypole celebration, a second May Day festival. Perhaps this one was larger. Bradford writes of the May Day celebrations, Drinking and dancing about it many days together, inviting the Indian women for their consorts, dancing and frisking together like so many fairies or furries. Bradford records that the maypole was an idol that 60 feet tall had antlers mounted on it. Bradford also records a poem that Morton had written that contained several references to a woman's body. Very, very modern vocabulary. You can look it up if you wish. How are we to view this behavior? Is this, is this fun? Is this the type of fun we would have today? This is college? Is this a party situation? Or is this some sort of evil overindulgence of our desires? Well, the historian Charles Francis Adams, the descendant of Puritans, of course, wrote that Morton was a born bohemian and reckless libertine without either morals or religion. The Christian historian Jeffrey Breeshears, he's a little more generous with Morton, and he calls him a libertarian humanist with few laws and rules. We know that even the two men who took up the old Wessagusset colony as their private plantation made association with Morton for company, and you can read into that as much as you want. However, the people at Plymouth had had enough, and Morton, despite receiving more warnings from the Plymouth settlers, decided to rename Mount Wollaston Marymount to double down on what some modern people would call his hedonist nature. Other modern people would just call it a good time. And other than Wessagusset, the scattered settlements in what would now be the state of Massachusetts that were English in origin had also had it with Morton. And so Plymouth passed the hat. And they came up with enough funds that if they could get a hold of Thomas Morton, they could send him back to England for prosecution. Now, this, of course, is where Miles Standish yet again comes into play. And as is the nature of this episode, the accounts vary. Standish led a force to Marymount, where, according to Standish's account, he found Thomas Morton and his small band of revelers pre-warned, armed, and holding out in a building. Standish claims Morton fired at him but was so drunk he clearly missed, fell over, and Standish was able to simply grab the man 
and walk him back to Plymouth. Morton's account varies. Morton says that he gave himself up willingly, offered no resistance, fired no gun, and wasn't drunk. Morton also refers to Standish as Captain Shrimp for his short stature. Morton was now a prisoner at Plymouth. His few followers who remained, probably having scattered, would reoccupy the site once the Plymouth men left. At his hearing in Plymouth, Morton denied selling liquor to the natives. But there doesn't exist any reference to him denying selling arms, or guns in other words. At the same time, historians have pointed out, there also aren't any references from this time period of natives within his reach having guns and using them against the English. Standish argues that this man should be put to death. Meanwhile, the cooler heads in Plymouth, and every head was cooler than Standish's head, decided to deport him back to England as originally was planned. It didn't stop Standish from threatening to shoot Morton, and ultimately Morton was considered such a contagion that until they could find a ship that would bring him back to England, they would strand him on a small island by himself. They placed him on the Isle of Shoals without any supplies, at God's mercy, until such transport could be provided. Governor Bradford declared him the Lord of Misrule. In the Calvinist mind, he really was a virus. He was something that needed to be isolated, contained, in an effort to stop the spread. Now, normally, this would be the end of our story. A scallywag had his day, met his end. But I've talked about this before. The New World is a fantastic place, and a unique place, where even the worst of us gets second and third and fourth chances. When Morton is finally deported back to England, to the port of Plymouth, England, where the commander of the fort is Sir Ferdinando Gorgeous of the Council for New England, Morton stand accused. But he's a lawyer. And the rhetoric started. He argued that the Maypole and the Maypole celebrations, the May Day, were all just excuses of the Plymouth settlers to get rid of him and reduce the competition in the beaver pelt trade. He painted himself to Gorgeous as an Anglican, a faithful, Bible-studying Anglican who was persecuted against by these separatists, by these people who wanted nothing to do with the Church of England. And Morton was there to show Gorgeous what these strange folks were doing, these nonconformists were doing in his beautiful New England. Now, Gorgeous had stepped away from his council. He was no longer the president at the moment. He was still one of the major investors. The current president, the Puritan Earl of Warwick, had just sanctioned the Massachusetts Bay Company. And Gorgeous was not a fan of his name being further associated with these nonconformist types. Lastly, the leaders of Plymouth provided no evidence for the charges that they drummed up on Thomas Morton. Morton, as a lawyer, was very quick to point that out. Not only did Morton walk, but Gorgeous hired him as an agent and sent him back to New England, specifically to Plymouth, where he arrives in 1629. Now, up till this point, the Puritans in Massachusetts and the Separatists in Plymouth believed Gorgeous to be an ally of theirs, at least in so much as that he wanted settlement of New England. Now things were starting to take a turn. He stays in the house of Isaac Allerton in Plymouth, and there really wasn't anything they could do about it at this point. Now over the year he had been gone, Governor Endicott of the new Massachusetts Bay Colony went and cut down his maypole, and the settlers at Salem had raided their food sources. And so the few followers he had were scattered. But this joint effort from Plymouth and Massachusetts proved to be a good sign that both colonies could begin working together in the future. Nevertheless, Thomas Morton doesn't stay in Plymouth very long. 
he goes back to the site of Marymount and he reoccupies it, intending to carry on his ways as he did before. However, Marymount now fell within the grant of the Massachusetts Bay Company, who already numbered far greater than Plymouth, and they quickly removed him and they put him in a cage for public display, sold all of his possessions in order to get money to send him again on a ship back to England, recommending the death penalty, of course. And once Morton again was deported, his maypole being gone, his people being gone, they burned his house to the ground. Some time would pass, and the Puritans in Massachusetts figured that they were done with Morton. He was gone, perhaps dead. Well, he wasn't. 1631, Morton somehow gets out of a second recommended death sentence, and he writes to Massachusetts Governor, Governor Winthrop, kindly reminding him that he had certain rights and privileges to Massachusetts Bay. He had deeds. He had paperwork. Now, this might have come from the Council for New England. In any case, Morton would still prove to be a headache. The historian Peter C. Mancall records, Bradford and Winthrop would soon come to realize that he was more dangerous to them in London than in New England to destroy the Bay Colony. Indeed, in our next episode, we'll be leaving southern New England and following Morton from London to Maine, where Sir Ferdinando Gorgias had set up his own colony, the two of them being part of a coalition to absolutely destroy the Massachusetts Bay Colony.